Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz pianist and composer George Kahn. He opened up about his latest 2018 CD called Straight Ahead and talked about his childhood in New Rochelle, New York, studying classical music from the age of nine. He began composing while he was in high school, and he did some gigs in the Boston area and on the East Coast with the disco band, but he eventually moved to California in 1976. He has been a major force in the Los Angeles jazz community since the late 90s. He took some time off from music and came back stronger than ever. This is just one tale in the annals of many. So please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. George, thanks for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz. I appreciate it, man. You're welcome. So let's go ahead and start off with Straight Ahead. It's a great album, and I want to know what kind of artistic vision went into this album. There were a couple of main things I was looking at. One was uh, the primary motivation was I'd never recorded a just a jazz trio album, you know, just piano-based drums. Every other project I've done over the years has been either a quartet, quintet, you know, a larger eight-piece group. You know, sometimes it'd be one trio cut on the CD, but I never really focused on that format, and I really wanted to create a document that um, you know really presented the the uh, piano-based drums trio format because that, that's really what one of the things that got me into jazz to begin with, and so it was, in a way it was kind of going back to my roots. Uh, so that was that was number one. Uh, number two was getting the right players. So uh, when I had the idea, uh, my my favorite drummer here in L.A. is Alex Acuna, and Alex has played on uh, a couple of my albums in the past, and he's kind of busy, you know, and to get him to commit to a project is not always the easiest thing, but you know, I called him up, uh, and I kind of explained what the plan was, and uh, he was totally on board. He was saying, yeah, let's do it. When do you want to start? And and uh, so that was kind of a linchpin item, you know, once I got that in there, and then Lyman I've worked with, Lyman Medeiros I've worked with for years now. He's my number one bass player call. So, you know, getting the players lined up, that was definitely part of the vision. And then in terms of material, you know, I wanted to, uh, you know, feature my originals, which I love writing and composing. I think that's probably one of my stronger elements of, of what I do. Um, but then I also knew how important it is to have songs that people recognize to make the album, you know, more approachable. And rather than just do standards in songs that everybody's heard, I decided to really focus on original, not original tunes, but recent tunes written by um, pop artists, people like Prince, Adele, Ed Sheeran. So they'd be songs that people would recognize, but not they wouldn't recognize them in a jazz format because they've either never been done that way or rarely been done that way. And so that was that was kind of the the overriding vision of the album was kind of those two those two points of you know bringing new, new music to the jazz uh, genre and also, you know, f- featuring my originals. So let's get back to the beginning of your life in New Rochelle, New York. You started studying classical music at nine and didn't start doing composing until you got in high school. Talk to me about how you got involved with jazz, maybe some of the first albums and kind of that early life of yours. Oh, sure. Yeah, the, um, you know, my, my original focus was classical music. That and then, you know, growing up in the, in the uh, 60s, you know, rock and roll was a big feature in everybody's life back then, I think. Um, and, uh, the, the sad thing for me, um, was, uh, uh, was that even though I grew up 
Joe, you know, in New Rochelle, New York, it was just 45 minutes outside of the city. Even through high school, I was not really into jazz, and so you know, I was going down to the village and seeing the Mothers of Invention or seeing Cream or whoever. But meanwhile, around the corner, you know, John Coltrane was performing, and I'm going, "Who's that?" (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of missed that boat, which was unfortunate. I didn't really get into jazz um, uh, until I was in college, and that was, I mean, early exposure would would have been like, you know, take five day Brubeck, you know, the the things that became mass, you know, enormously popular in the popular culture. But in terms of really Focusing on jazz and getting uh, deep into the music that didn't happen until college, and, and uh, the, my first memory of that was when I was a freshman in college. I went to Brandeis University in, uh, in Waltham, Massachusetts, and I remember going to with a friend to somebody's house apartment in it was either in Somerville or Cambridge, somewhere over that way, and um, he was playing this album "Kulu Say Mama" by John Coltrane, and it just just blew my mind, just the sound and the the whole thing, the album cover, just everything was like, oh my God, there's like a whole other world here. And that, I think, was the first, uh, the first real door opening for me. And then uh, from there, I just, you know, started really plunging into uh, improvisatory music and jazz music in general. Yeah. So you were in Cape Cod and you performed around Boston for a little while, and then you go all the way to the other coast, to California. How did that transpire, and did you go through any kind of uh, culture shock or anything in, in that adjustment? <laughs> uh, good question. Good question. Um, how that transpired was, you know, after I graduated with a degree in music, and then I bummed around Cape Cod for two and a half years, literally you know, as a beach bum working in a record store, you know, during the day. And I kept telling people I was a, I was a musician, but I wasn't really playing that much. And I realized that, you know, it was time to stop saying I was a musician and, uh, you know, start being one. So I moved back to Boston and started gigging there. And, again, this is um, this is mid-'70s. There is and there was at that time, a, you know, a jazz scene in Boston, but it was primarily filled with students, you know, people that were studying at Berkeley or wherever. And so to actually make a living as a jazz musician in Boston was Impossible unless you were a teacher, and I, you know, I didn't have my masters or anything like that. So I just started gigging, taking road gigs with different bands, whatever. And um, after about a year of that, I realized, you know, if I'm going to really make this happen, it's got to be either New York or L.A. And having grown up outside New York, I knew I didn't want to go to New York. I, you know, New York's an exciting city. I love visiting it, but just a little intense for me. Uh, the idea of trying to maneuver a, a Fender Rhodes piano up and down. Um, to up an apartment or a gig or whatever, and through the subway, just it just wasn't appealing, you know. Um, and at that point, a couple of my friends had already musician friends had already moved to Los Angeles, and I contacted one of them. Um, this is back in the day when uh, we wrote letters. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I remember those days. You remember those days? Okay, so oh, yeah. um, you know, I wrote a letter to my wrote a letter to my friend in. Uh, in uh, L.A., and he, he was living in Hollywood in an apartment. I said, um, New York, L.A., what do you think? What should I do? And he said, well, you know, the worst thing that will happen if you come to L.A. is you're going to end up in a band like you're in now, you know, touring and playing playing rock and roll. And the best thing is it could be anything, you know, because it's Hollywood and dreams happen here. And besides, you can sleep on my floor until you find a place to stay. And I went, oh, done. That was it. So, so you know, I threw all my stuff, including the Fender Roads, into a Dodge A100 van and, 
my, my bass player friend, and I drove across country, and uh, and the rest is history. And then that was it. No culture shock. I mean, I was, I I would have had more culture shock. I think moving to New York, uh, I I was already uh, very fascinated by the the music scene in L.A. That the the cross pollination between the studio cats and the jazz uh, the jazz albums, and they were coming out of the city, and um, so I just I just plunged into it. I loved the whole scene. So obviously everything's worked out for you in Los Angeles. Yes, I'd say. Okay, <laughs> there you go. So my question is this. When you got there, how long did it take for you to start getting the gigs that you wanted and getting into that music fold that you really did want to get into? That's a, a long story, which I'll try to give you a, a, a brief version of this. So I moved out here wanting to really focus on jazz. Like uh, most musicians, you realize that... Uh, I mean, you may want to play jazz, but you may have to play everything. You know, you got to take what, what you get. And um, I was, you know, fairly versatile pianist, so I I, I, uh, I was getting you know a fair amount of gigs. And then at a certain point, I realized my real focus and what I really wanted to do was more comp- composition. And um, so I started studying privately with a, uh, a guy named Spud Murphy, who some people may know. He's a, a big a big band arranger from the '40s and uh, 30s and 40s, who uh, also created a whole orchestration uh, technique and uh, film scoring technique. So I studied with him for, for about five years and really focused on moving into that arena for uh, my musical experience. And that worked out okay, but it was, you know, it was kind of like beating your head against a wall. It's hard to hard to break in, you know, like anything in the music business is you either get a lot or you don't get much, you know. And... Um, so there was a certain point there uh, back in the mid-'80s where I really got burnt out, and I just um, left the music business. I totally stopped playing, stopped writing, I dropped out. And I dropped out for about 15 years, pursued other other avenues to make money, you know. And then fast forward to about 1998, and the music world had changed. 1998, you had the MP3s, you had uh, the Internet, and it was suddenly possible to create your own music and have it um, distributed without having to work with a gatekeeper at a record company or uh, uh, anybody telling you what you should record or what you should do. And I just latched onto that. And um, uh, at that point, I was ready to plunge back into music. And I thought, what well, you know, what did I always want to do? You know, and my my passion had always been that late '50s, early '60s period of jazz. You know, kind of Miles Davis kind of blue, uh, early Herbie Hancock. You know, Red Garland, Wynton Kelly, all those, all those, uh, all those, uh, you know, great jazz pianists of that period. And, um, so I thought, well, you know, if that's what I want to do, I'm just going to do that. So I started producing my own albums. My first one came out in 1999. And it's, since then, it's been really a focus on that, you know, what I call classic jazz, early, um, you know, late bebop, early, Early swing and you know period of music, and that's 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 what I decided to do, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Well, and it looks like too you've been doing some you know fundraisers for the homeless out there in LA. Seems like it, it seems like to me, based on what I see the the projects that you're doing. Once you came back to music, there was a level, there was a different consciousness that, that that went into this. Do you feel refreshed? Do you feel more? invigorated by being in music now than you were, say, younger when you were in Cape Cod and getting into it? 
<laughs> yeah, I absolutely do. I absolutely do. Yeah, there's a there's a uh, an excitement for me at this point. I think in that you know the projects I do are, are things that really excite me. You know, and um, uh, you mentioned the uh, the fundraiser uh, aspect. I do um, something that I've developed over the last few years is I have a, a larger group called the Jazz and Blues Review. We put out an album in 2014, and that group includes three female singers, and we do a variety of jazz vocal styles, you know, um, again, starting from the 40s up to the 80s, and uh, uh, with that group, we do an annual fundraiser for an organization called PATH, which is People Assisting the Homeless, and it started kind of small initially, and the charity started kind of small, and now PATH is a multi-million dollar charity, and uh, we do an annual fundraiser for a division of PATH, which is um, a division that builds permanent housing for the formerly homeless. And um, over the years, it's just grown and grown. Last year, we uh, we uh, brought in about $80,000 $80, for the charity from our from our fundraiser. I'm, I'm just so thrilled to be part of that and to help make a, make a change there. So let me ask you this. After all these years of, of being in music and going on hiatus and coming back and being where you're at today, are you happy with how your careers turned out? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. I am. I'm, you know, it's interesting. Um I look at my career in relation to um, you know, jazz because that's really what I love to do and what I want to do. And um I'm a realist about this stuff um to a good extent. Uh uh this may or may not be surprising to you or to your listeners, but you know, when I started recording jazz albums, which was 20 years ago, uh I did a little research, and jazz music, as far as sales, was about 3% of all sales in the United States, music sales. And, yeah. you know, it's a, clearly a niche market, right? Well, yeah. fast forward 20 years later, now jazz is about 1.5% of all music sales. It, you know, the, the numbers are not going in the right direction, which is a sad thing. Um, and along with that, uh, I believe that jazz has become very regionalized. You know, it's almost impossible to do a U.S. tour uh, unless you are you know, Christian McBride or Herbie Hancock or someone of that caliber. You know, there's the, again, the upper level of people can, can pull that off. But that's the bad news. But the good news is that because it's been regionalized, every city has amazing jazz players and has amazing places to play jazz. And that's certainly true for L.A. You know, just in the last year, a couple of new clubs have opened up here in Los Angeles that are really cool listening rooms. So I'm unhappy that, it, that the, the market hasn't grown, but I am very happy with the uh the interest and the level of you know what's going on here in LA you know it's again it's not getting bigger it's more more moving constantly moves sideways you know <laughs> but there's there's um as I say there's always new rooms and uh new people come along and go you know I I you know we want to create a we want to create a jazz scene and so it keeps flowing and and the thing that I like you know after doing it and being part of the LA jazz scene as long as I have is that uh, there's a uh, you know, a level of, I've reached a level of, of, I don't know what the word is, you know, respectability and, uh, and influence that, uh, you know, I can usually get into the rooms that I want to get into, which is, which is pretty much all I can ask for. That, that and, you know, having people, you know, download the album every now and then, so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of clubs, you know, sometimes the most influential teachers in your life are the live shows that you've seen. And speaking of jazz, what, what shows have you seen that have left a deep impression on you? 
Well, there's one in particular, since you, since you asked that question, that always comes to mind, and that's when I saw the Bill Evans Trio in Boston. Um, oh. And this was, I believe, I'm trying to remember, I think it was 1975. I moved out here in 76, so it was right before I moved to L.A. I was still living in the Boston area. And um, Bill Evans was playing with uh, with uh, Joe LaBarbera, and um, I can't remember the bass player's name right now. They were playing the, uh, you know, the one of the the clubs in in Boston, you you know, because it was jazz workshop was what it called. You would walk down into the basement, and there it was, you know. And uh, it was, you know, it was amazing to see him perform live. And then uh, during the break, he was sitting at the bar, and uh, you know, I thought, you know, I'm just going to go up and say hello. I got, so I got up all my all my uh, nerve, and uh, you know, sat down next to him and said, you know, Bill, I, you know, I really appreciate your music. You know, it means so much to me. And um, we just started chatting. He was like totally friendly. We had a lovely conversation, and at a certain point in the conversation, he pulled out his wallet and he pulled out a picture of his son Evan, who at that point I think was like one, maybe two, and um, and he said, uh, you know, I love playing music, but you know this, and he pointed to the picture. He said, this is really where it's at. Family is really where it's at, you know, and, and don't lose sight of that. That was really an amazing thing. And then, you know, then they finished the second set, and I think the next day he flew to Japan for <laughs> on the world tour, wherever he was going, you know. So, so, but, um, you know, it, it, that really stuck with me. So that was, a, that was a very cool moment. That's a great story. And what's interesting is I just saw Joe LaBarbera um, last weekend. He was, at, uh, he was playing Disney Hall with, uh, with Justo Almario and um, Eric Reed on piano. And uh, so Joe's, Joe teaches at CalArts, so he's you know he's become a fixture of the LA jazz scene, and uh, it's always a pleasure to see him play. He's he's definitely one of the great old school drummers. It was almost like watching Shelley Mann or uh, or Gene Krupa, you know, play just you know, yeah. real lot of lot of loose. He's just loose, so loose, you know. Yeah, absolutely. To watch. Yeah. So let me ask you this: Why do you love jazz? I love jazz because it's always new. You know, it's it's. The improvisational aspect of jazz is what has always attracted me to it. I love that. that's why I love listening to jazz, and I love playing jazz because it's it's like having a two or three hour communication with your best friends when you when you play live. It's just like you know we have a format. We have we you know we have we're going to have a discussion. The discussion may be uh, Green Dolphin Street, or the discussion may be uh, Thieves in the Temple. Whatever the topic is, we then get to spend four or five minutes. You know. Talking about it, working it out, you know. <laughs> yeah, and it's, I dig it. I just love it. Uh, I just love it. Let me ask you this. Everything is going to come down to this. Everyone has a, a version of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but you run your ship. So tell me, who do you think you are? That's a, that's a, that's a deep question, Joe. I think I'm a, uh, an open, responsive, giving person. You know, I, 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 you know on, on my good days, I start the day by uh, stretching, meditating, and then just asking myself, you know, who can I give to today? How can I, who can I help today in, in one way or another? That's, I think, who I am. And I, I do carry that into my work day, and I carry it into my composition, and I carry it into the gigs I play. You know, I respect the musicians I work with. I want to make sure they're paid well. I want to make sure we're playing clubs that are, that, that you know, respect the music. You know, try to keep, just carry that forward. That's a great answer. That's what I was looking for, and I think that's a great way to wrap everything up. Thank you for taking a little time out and talking about your career, talking about your latest album, and opening up with me on jazz. I appreciate it. 
I really appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in California, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to George for his time, his stories, and his music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.